This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, You'll recall last week that Jesus has asked them, uh, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah or Elisha or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. We had the feeding of the 5,000. After he gets done feeding the 5,000, he sends them back. He's like, all right, I'm going to go up to the mountain and pray here. You guys go back. And, uh, and as they're rowing across the lake, it's at night and the wind is blowing and it's contrary to them. Here comes Jesus walking across the water, which, by the way, Luke doesn't include this, but John does. And this is the passage where Peter gets out of the boat and all of that, and then they immediately make their way to the other side. When they get over there, the people make their way back, finally, to Capernaum. And here's Jesus, and they're like, well, wait a minute. We know you didn't get in the boat, so how did you get over here? And that discussion all ensues, only to discover that, you know, they're trying to get another free meal out of Jesus. I mean, you know, Moses gave the man in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, come on, you could cough up two meals, right? I mean, they don't say it quite like that, but close. They want Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God by giving them another free meal. Well, this causes Jesus to go into a discussion about being the bread of life. When he talks to them about being the bread of life, this is not a discussion they really want to hear. They just want a meal. They don't, they, don't, it's, they don't really want to repent. It's interesting, the woman at the well, when Jesus talks to her about living water, and she says, oh, that I might have this living water, and Jesus speaks to her about being the Messiah, she believes. Here is his own Capernaum, that, you know, just, just right next to Nazareth. His own people. Not the Samaritans, the Jews. And he says to them, I am the bread of life. Do they believe? No, there's no repentance. Uh, This is John 6. He records this. It says, your father ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This bread, which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. You think, boy, you know, give me that bread, right? Then Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. Like, well, you know, that sounds good. And then he says this, And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Therefore the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, this... (laughs) And Jesus said to them, Oh, no, no, you misunderstand. Uh, Actually, no, that's not what he says to them. What he says to them is, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or surely, surely, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. On the off chance that you thought, well, maybe we misunderstood, we're not, he's not really talking about eating his flesh, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually is. I, I mean, as those things go, right? So we jump down a little bit in John 6, we get to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples, I mean, let alone the other people, his disciples withdrew and just didn't walk with him anymore. It's like, this is, this is too much. And so Jesus now says to the 12, uh, you want to go away as well? I mean, do you, you guys want to depart? And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, indicating that I don't really understand this any better than anybody else. I don't really know how this all works, but here's what I know. There's no one else to go to. 
There is nowhere else to turn. There's, there is no other place for us to go. Now, Luke pretty much, he, he doesn't include any of that. You have to go to the other Gospels. But then again, Luke's already got a pretty long book, particularly when you add it with Acts. He's, he's already writing a lot. So he doesn't include it all. He just goes from the feeding of the 5,000 over to this, which picks up. And he says to them, verse 23, he was saying to them all, his disciples, and to anyone else who was listening, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. So if we want to follow Jesus, Jesus is looking at his apostles and the disciples and everybody else. He's like, if you want to come after me, if you want to actually follow in my footsteps, if you want to truly be the person you need to be before God and truly be the person you need to be within the kingdom and have a right relationship with the Messiah and understand who the Messiah is and all, if you want to follow me, then this is what you have to do. Deny yourself. When we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, when we say, well, I, you know, I, I, I want to follow Jesus, we have to really stop for a moment and think about What does that look like? I mean, exactly where did Jesus' footsteps lead him? What kind of a life did Jesus lead? If you want to follow after Jesus, you actually have to follow after Jesus. And you can't create a fictitious Jesus of your own imagination who you think said or did or acted in some particular way. You actually have to go back to the Gospels. And you have to look at the actual life of Jesus. And we don't want to ever take for granted the sacrifice that Jesus made. The footsteps, the, the, the road that Jesus walked was to actually step out of heaven, become a man, be born in a manger, into a family under questionable circumstances, the whole Mary and Joseph thing, uh, all of that is the road that Jesus walked on. He came down here so that he could show us how to walk a godly life. He came down here specifically to walk to the cross. This is what he desired to do. This is the road that he got on. His sacrifice was the very purpose for which he came. And so when we want to follow Jesus, what the temptation is for us to want to walk a road of great victory. We want to walk a road in which everything goes good, everything goes great. I mean, after all, God loves us. It's all marvelous, right? We're just going to, everything is going to go good for us. But the fact is that the life of Jesus is a life in which he chooses to deny what is rightfully his for our behalf. He doesn't need to leave heaven, but he does. And when he gets here, Where does he choose to be born? In a a manger. I mean, in a barn. And he's put in a feeding trough for animals. What? What? This is the son of God. Why would he choose that? Because this is required for us to understand who he is. He's not born in a palace. 
He's not born into a family with great political power or great wealth or, or great fame or prestige or anything else. His entire life is a series of choices in which he denies his, who he is and what he deserves. People should fall down at the feet of Jesus and literally worship the ground he walks on. This is God in the flesh in front of us. That's not what he does. He comes down here and he leads a, at least for the first 30 years, a pretty normal life. There's no real indication that he does anything greatly exceptional. No one really seems, I mean, when he finally gets around to declaring who he is, his entire town is like, well, who does this guy think he is? Isn't this just Joseph's son? I mean, isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, why? Who does this guy claim to be? And so the life of Jesus is this very ordinary life. And so when the gospel is preached and we talk about you need to follow Jesus, what we're talking about is a perhaps great shifting in our natural way of thinking. Our natural way of thinking is that, well, if I come to Jesus, uh, and by the way, there are people out there who actually deliberately preach a gospel in which Jesus is here to meet all of your needs. Jesus is the ultimate need meter. And the gospel, by the way, is the ultimate self-fulfillment message. Jesus came so that the poor can become rich, so that the sick can become healthy, and so, so that the, the lonely can have a friend. And we can sometimes be tempted to present the gospel in such a way that it's like, well, I've got to present it like it appeals to people. I've got to, okay, what is it that that you feel like you need. Well, Jesus can meet that need. Okay. The gospel is not the ultimate message of self-fulfillment. Jesus is the ultimate self-fulfillment guru. No, he's not. Jesus is the ultimate self-denial. That's what his message is. He gets up and says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. He didn't say, if you follow me, I'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not what he says at all. What he says is that if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to look at the life I led, and you're going to have to realize that at every point in my life, as Jesus goes through his life, from his public baptism to his temptation in the wilderness to his coming back to being rejected, who rejects him? Well, his family rejects him. His town rejects him. His entire nation rejects him. He knows that. He understands. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And he did it anyway. Why? Because he is denying himself. And he says, if you want to follow me, you need to be prepared that that might be the exact road you have to walk down. It's not guaranteed. You might not. I mean, you might follow Jesus and have things go well for you. You might. Um, But you have to realize that if you're going to determine to follow Jesus, if you want to come after him, you are going to have to deny yourself. In fact, he uses this term. You're going to have to take up your cross daily. We live in a society where, at this point in time, capital punishment itself is a fairly rare occurrence. The dear state of Texas, in which we all live, is one of the higher states in our 50 that continues to carry out capital punishment. 
in the ancient world, capital punishment was metered out a little more freely. The Romans had a particularly heinous method of capital punishment, crucifixion. They employed crucifixion in general for a specific crime. Now, the Romans would kill you for lots of things. I mean, there were a variety of capital crimes. But the one that crucifixion was pretty much reserved for was rebellion. If you rebelled against the Roman government, if you tried to overthrow Rome, if you attacked Roman officials, if you attacked the Roman government, this was the punishment that they gave out to you. Barabbas, you will remember, Jesus dies. Remember, give us Jesus or Barabbas. Jesus, Barabbas is released. What did Barabbas do? Barabbas tried to launch a rebellion. The two thieves who are hanging on the right and left hand of Jesus were most likely involved in the rebellion of stealing stuff from the Romans in an attempt to start a rebellion against Rome. So we're going to crucify Barabbas. Of course, they don't. They end up crucifying Jesus. How does this work? This entire process of crucifixion, which we have to step back into the first century and think about, the entire process is deliberately set up to convey a particular message. You are a defeated foe. In fact, what we're going to make you do after we arrest you and scourge you, literally beat you, Uh, with rods or with whips, whichever, whatever it takes, we're going to weaken you physically to the place where you have really no more resistance left. And then we're going to give you the cross member of your cross, and you are going to carry that to your crucifixion. This This is in the family of, we're going to make you dig your own grave, and then we're going to... We don't want to dig your grave. It's too much work. We're going to make you dig your grave, and then we're going to shoot you and and bury you in it. This is in the same family, but even worse. We're not just going to make you dig your own grave. We're going to make you pick up the major member of your crucifixion, and you're going to carry it. And as you parade through the streets with this thing, there is a particular message that is conveyed. The statement that is made is that you are no longer a threat to Rome. You are humiliated, you are subjugated, you are in total submission to Rome. I mean, they're making you carry your own cross. And we all know where you're going with that thing. You're headed to wherever the place of crucifixion is. And when you get there, we're going to crucify you. The end result of this entire thing is you are going to end up crucified. If you have any followers, if you have any people who have decided that they want to engage in your rebellion with you, and perhaps they haven't all been caught and the Roman authorities are not able to ferret out everybody who was involved in this rebellion, well, you can all just kind of stand around and watch your leader who stood up and made all of these great declarations against Rome and defied them. And Okay, you get to watch this guy walk along with his head hanging down and I mean, he is just a beaten mess, and he's lugging his cross. And the Romans are like, this could be you. And they don't even have to say it. Everyone just watches this and is like, ooh, 
Maybe, maybe uh, rebellion against Rome is not a good idea. And your great leader, uh, not much of a leader anymore, right? Rome has caused them to submit. When you're hanging there, you might rally just long enough to come up with, you know, yell and holler at the Romans. I, I think they were fine with that. Go ahead, by all means. Hang there and make whatever statement you want to make. Uh, make whatever powerful rhetorical response to this you think you can, because it doesn't really matter. We're just going to leave you hanging there until you die. So go ahead, yell, rally at Rome, it's fine. We don't, we don't care. And You'll note that the, the two thieves hanging next to Jesus, one of them begins to rail on him. The other one is like, hey, wait a minute. We actually deserve to be here. He doesn't. And in an astounding display of faith. I mean, imagine. Here Jesus is hanging on a cross next to him. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your paradise. That is an amazing display of faith. This is a guy who is not looking for the Messiah to rule and reign and defeat the Romans. I mean, it's really obvious at this point Jesus is not in the business of defeating the Romans. And this guy believes in him anyway. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. So when you walk with your cross, what you are doing is there's no pride. You have no more pride. You have no more self-will. You have... You have you're no longer a proud rebel who is defying Rome. You are, you're defeated. You, you, are, you are looking down. You are just trying to get one foot in front of the other. And, and you are on your way to dying. That's who you are. So when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you need to daily take up your cross and follow me, that's a really tough statement for these people to hear. What in the world are you calling us to? What kind of a life is this? You want us to get up every morning and actually act like we are on our way to our death every day? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, actually, I do. I want you to die to yourself every day. We, and there are many good passages I'm going to read here in just a second. We do prominently display the cross. We do. But we need to remember that it's a somber instrument here. This is, this is an instrument of death. Um, so Paul writes, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He also says in Colossians, through him, Jesus, he reconciled all things to himself. He made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The cross is the instrument that God used to bring about peace. But remember that this is, this is a huge price for Jesus to pay to purchase our peace, to die on the cross. He goes on in Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of death consistent consisting of the decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Jesus basically took the old covenant and nailed it to the cross. He took the old covenant with him and as the embodiment of God died to take away 
the Old Covenant. It's, it's a reverence symbol. Um, Hebrews 12, 2. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. But he despised the shame and is now set down at the right hand of God. We may show, if you see a, a, you know, a statue or something of Jesus hanging on the cross, we may have some kind of a you know, clothing situation, but that's not the reality. Part of hanging on the cross was no clothes at all. Part of the whole thing was the shame of it. The inability to in any way hide. You are going to hang here until you die. This is... You're going you're to experience total humiliation. No pride, no anything. So Paul writes in Galatians, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is, the world now holds no power over me. The world can no longer tell me what to do or not to do because I'm crucified to the world. I mean, I'm already on a de- under a death sentence. I'm already on my way to dying. What is the world going to threaten me with? What, are you going to threaten me with heaven? You know, I mean, it's, well, what are you going to do to me? Kill me? Okay, I don't care. Go ahead. All I do is get out of here and go to heaven. So I'm crucified to the world. They hold no power over me. The world can't tell us what to do. And I, to the world, that is, when I look at the world and all that the world offers and all the allure of the world and the lust of flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, all of those things, they hold no power over me. I'm crucified to the world. You can't threaten me and you can't tempt me. Why? Because I am crucified. So this command to take up our cross daily and to follow Jesus is a command to start every day Dying to ourselves. Acknowledging that we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are aliens. This, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. All of our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, right? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't call this world my home anymore. This is who we are. Yes, we're passing through this world. But we are not of this world anymore. Our citizenship is someplace else. We need to be ready to just serve God. Interesting, uh, if you've read any articles on discussions about uh, nuclear warfare, one of the strategic challenges of nuclear warfare, if you actually drop a nuclear bomb, okay, yes, it kills a whole pile of people. It's devastating and all that. But as you work your way out from the epicenter of where this thing goes off, there's actually a big circle of people who will survive for two or three weeks. If that group of people happens to be a group of soldiers, uh, one of the things you have to take into your calculation by the, before you start launching nuclear bombs, is uh, what are you going to do about these people? Guess what? They all got two weeks to live. Just imagine the uh, assignments you can give these folks. Uh, Suicide missions? Absolutely. And they're going to die anyway. Their insides have just, you you, you got radiation poisoning. So, sure, you want to strap a bomb to me? Absolutely. What do you want me to do? I'll go do it. In fact, you have an entire army of these people. All prepared to just go out and do whatever it takes to exact revenge on the people who did this to them. Okay, that kind of 
thinking, this idea that, you know what? Why hold back? Why try to have some kind of reserve here? We need to approach our life with Christ without reserve. There's no reserve. There's no holding back. There's no like, well, I kind of want to serve God, but, you know, I've got to kind of keep one foot back. I don't want to actually really, you know, totally commit to this thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do. That's what Jesus is saying. You need to die to yourself. You need to get up. In fact, you need to do this every day. That's, that's what he says. If you want to follow me, you need to every day get up and take up your cross and follow me. The only people who are carrying a cross are people who are, on, are, are under a death sentence. Well, guess what? We are all under a death sentence. This is us. And so we need to, when we approach our relationship with God, we need to be clear because the devil comes along and he the devil is a, he is just a great liar. He's just, in fact, his entire power is the ability to lie to us. The problem is, because we're born in this world, and we're born in his kingdom, and we're, and we're naturally inclined to his kingdom, we're inclined to go with the lies. So when the devil lies to us, we just kind of like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So when the devil comes along and tells us that you should have great benefits, we Kind of go, yeah. And when Jesus comes along, it's wait, let me give you the truth here. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Look, well, wait a minute. I thought the whole idea was that, you know, God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that the gospel is this message about how great things are going to be. Mm. Isn't God going to shelter us from all the hardships of this world? Aren't we going to somehow, I mean, come on, we're serving God here. We're going to have great benefit, right? When we look at, for instance, the book of Job. The book of Job is a discussion about the lie of the devil and the truth. The lie of the devil is this. He says this to God. Job doesn't know this conversation is going on. But the lie that, that the devil puts forward is that, look, people only serve you because you buy them off. That's the lie. The only people God can actually get to serve him are those people that he takes care of. Well, of course, Job serves you. You built a hedge around him. Look how rich he is. Look how many kids he's got. Look at all of his stuff. Look at all of his wealth. That's the only reason he serves you. Take that away and he will curse you to your face. Was that true? Is that actually true? Or is that a lie? Well, the whole book of Job is to help us see that that is, in fact, a lie. And so, when the moment comes to come back, second time around, the sons of God gather themselves, and God brings up Job again and says to him, uh, by the way, really clear point to make here. God actually says to Satan, He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me to move against him and to ruin him without a cause. God takes full responsibility for all of Job's loss. God doesn't blame the devil. God knows the devil's not in charge. The the devil only gets to do what God lets him do. And God ultimately says, I am the one that was moved against Job, and you incited me to do it. And, of course, Satan comes back with, well, skin for skin, you know. Let him be sick, and then he'll curse you. Is that true, or is that a lie? And, of course, God allows Satan to do that. And what do you know? Sure enough, that's a lie, too. Job's three friends come to him. They, too, have a lie. Their lie is, 
only the wicked suffer. Righteous people never suffer. So, Job, the sooner you owe up to whatever your wickedness is here and confess what a wicked guy you are, well, the sooner this will all go away. It's a lie. The fact is, sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And that's the truth. That's the reality of this world. And so the whole idea here, the thing that we need to to realize is that there is this huge cosmic conflict that is going on all the time. There is the natural way in which we think about things. And then there's God's way of thinking about things. And this passage, as Jesus looks at his disciples, remember all of these guys, they all think that, well, Jesus is the Messiah. And so any minute now, the kingdom is going to come. And we're going to get to sit on thrones and we're going to get to rule and reign and everything is going to go wonderful. And remember, we read last week one passage from Isaiah and there are lots of them about the lion laying down with the lamb and peace and prosperity and all the nations are going to gather among us and and this is just going to be great. And Jesus is looking at them going, guys, this is not how this is going to go. You need to realize now that you've finally figured out on the Christ, that I'm actually God's Messiah, I'm trying to help you now. You need to completely 180 degree turn around and reorient your thinking. It's not going to go like you think. You all think this is going to go wonderful. It's not. It's going to be challenges and difficulties and hardships. But it's okay. I'm just letting you know so that you can actually live this Christian life. Because if you fall for the lies of the devil, you're just going to continuously struggle with this. You're going to continuously fight and have difficulty and you just need to take up your cross and humbly submit and say, God's will is my will. I'm going to deny myself and follow Christ. But don't think that the devil isn't going to be right there next to you while you're trying to do that, whispering in your ear. And he's going to say things that sound good. We sometimes think that demonic is Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy or some wild-eyed radical who knows what, you know, some kind of crazy. Now, it's not to say the devil's not involved in those people's lives. He certainly is. But the fact is that the devil would much be, be much happier to come along and to be an angel of light and have a big smile and to talk about good things because that can get us off the right track. The devil comes along and says things like, you deserve a break today. I think, what could be wrong with that? I mean, obviously I do deserve a break. Do we? Do we actually deserve a break? Yeah. Uh, Are you sure? This is appealing to, this is not deny yourself. This is whatever you do, don't deny yourself. After all, you deserve a break. So you ought to just go out and indulge yourself. Why? Because you deserve it. In fact, you should have it your way. I know it's terrible, isn't it? I But you look at these things and they sound good. We look at that and go, what? The fact is, they are demonic. 
We don't tend to think of that as demonic, though. We think demonic is, you know, we're back over here with Jeffrey Dahmer and mass murderers and Hitler, and that's demonic. Mm, yes, that is, too. It's not suggesting that isn't. But the fact is, getting up every day and telling you, you should have a your way. Okay, that's a lie from the, from the pit. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus just said, what I want you to do every day is to get up and to deny yourself. And to take up your cross and in humility admit that God is sovereign and you are not. And yield and submit to the will and authority of God in your life. Jesus didn't say get up every morning and say you can have it your way. It's exactly the opposite of what Jesus said. So we as Christians, we need to have an expectation that our lives are going to be challenging. It's okay. God has not abandoned you because your life is challenging. God has not somehow withdrawn his love from you simply because you have difficulties. Everybody has difficulties. We all have difficulties. In fact, you need to deliberately take up your cross every day and say, you know what? Um, I am going to follow God. We don't need to learn to love ourselves more. That's another lie. Our problem is not that we don't love ourselves enough. Our problem is we love ourselves way too much. That's our problem. And even if you look at something as like taking your own life, you look at those folks and and we have compassion on those folks and we want to help those folks, but you also need to think through exactly what are you doing here. Well, my life is so painful, things have gone so bad that I'm willing to take a bet that whatever comes after this has got to be better than this. I hurt so bad I'm willing to do anything to stop the hurt. That is the ultimate selfishness. And oh, by the way, I don't care what happens to anybody I leave behind. That's, you know, in fact, anyone I've ever talked to, and I've talked to a number of people who have, with some seriousness, have really thought about taking their own lives, they generally sit around and convince themselves that everyone will be better off without me anyway. Well, of course, that's not true either. That's just another lie. We can take care of one another and we should take care of one another and be careful about falling for selfishness. That is the way of the devil. He owns the whole world. He doesn't have to, it doesn't have to all be some kind of crazy demonic insanity. It can just be, have it your way. You deserve a break today. Indulge yourself. These, the devil owns the whole world. So if he can just get us to act selfishly, then we will act according to his kingdom instead of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross, and when we follow Christ. That is the kingdom of God. That's how the kingdom of God works. And this is when we preach the gospel to people. Don't, don't, you don't have to sugarcoat it. Tell people the truth. There is a sovereign God in heaven to whom you are going to give an account for your life. Think soberly about that. Yes, God loves us, but if you don't seek the forgiveness of God, you're not going to get it. He doesn't just hand it to everyone. He he did a great thing in sending his son to die, But if you don't come to him and thank him for that, if you don't have a genuine repentance and a desire to leave the kingdom of darkness and to seek out the kingdom of light and to serve the king of light, salvation's 
not going to be yours. You're not going to get it. And, and we should help people to think clearly. You are walking across eternity on rotted boards. I don't care how healthy you are at the moment. I don't care how secure you think you are or, or how, how much you think that for sure you're going to be here for however far into the future it is you think you're going to be here. We can find people in your exact set of physical circumstances and material circumstances who all thought they had lots and lots and lots of time who didn't make it through the day. It is no miracle for God to take any of us out of this place. It's a miracle any of us make it to tomorrow. That's the miracle. And we had better remember that we have a sovereign, dreadful God whom you do not want to stand in front of and give an account of your life apart from the blood of Christ, which he willingly shed on our behalf. And you need only come and ask, and your sins can be forgiven. If you refuse then you will stand before God on your own. A dreadful, terrible thing to do. It will not go well for you. And we need to help people. This is a divine summons. God is going to deal with their sin, and they can either answer for it themselves, or they can avail themselves of the forgiveness God offers. But that's it. Those are the only two choices you have. And if you will not have this man rule over you, then you will answer for your own sin. We need to help people think about that. And we don't need to appeal to their selfishness, and we don't need to tell them that, well, whatever your problems are, if you're lonely, Jesus will be your friend, and if you're hungry, Jesus will make sure you get food. And We we don't have to go there. We need to help them understand that their sin needs to be dealt with. And once your sin is dealt with, sure, there's all kinds of great things. I, as Christians, we have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Our sins are forgiven. Our, we, that whole load of guilt is taken off in us. And yes, God does watch out for us. And if we will apply biblical principles, chances are pretty good. Our lives, most likely, not guaranteed, but they will probably go better. We'll be good employees and we'll probably get promoted at work because we're honest and hardworking and kind and compassionate and forgiving. And those things, in general, should work to our benefit. But the gospel is to come to God in humility and to admit that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. And then to take up our cross every single day and in humility and with a sense that, who knows whether we have tomorrow, seek to serve God. If we want to follow Jesus, that's the road we have to walk. That's the road he walked. He spent every day knowing that the end was the cross. So we should spend every day knowing that our ends may be tough. That may be the end of our life. It may not be, but it might be. We should walk every day like it truly is. That's how we follow Jesus. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. Don't If your life right now, if if you're like, man, I've got some real challenges I'm facing, real difficulties and hardships, okay, that's the part of the plan of God for your life. It's it's not like you've got outside of the will of God as if anyone could actually do that. It's impossible, by the way, to get outside the will of God. You can't do it. God uses our trials and our difficulties. He redeems them. He makes us new people. Don't pray to get your circumstances changed. Pray that you'll be changed. 
The only thing you can change is you anyway. So change your attitude and go, okay, this is just part of the cross that I carry every day for for Christ. So I'm going to just be filled with kindness and compassion and peace and gentleness anyway. That's the work of Christ. That's what he says. Take up your cross every day and follow me. This is going to be a tough road. Smile and take it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you make it as clear to us as you can that in this world, as strangers and pilgrims and aliens, that we are going to be in a battle, challenges, difficulties. The way of the world is not the way we're going. We are walking in the opposite direction of the world, and may we just realize that, take up our cross every morning and walk the path. Help us, Lord, to be good ambassadors of yours. Help us to understand the gospel that we can convey it to people in a way that will convey who you truly are. Send us people into our lives and in our way who are ready and desirous to hear the gospel. Give us the boldness and the wisdom to know how to convey it. We pray in your son's precious name who gave his life for us. Amen.